Second Kings chapter 14, verses 1 through 22 is our text. Second Kings 14, beginning at verse 1. In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, rather, Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadin of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord yet not like his father David. He did according to all that Joash his father had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now it came about as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his hand that he killed his servants who had slain the king his father. But the sons of the slayers he did not put to death according to what is written in the law of Moses, as the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the sons, nor the sons be put to death for the fathers, but each shall be put to death for his own sin. He killed of Edom in the valley of Salt ten thousand and took Selah by war and named it Jokthel to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face each other. Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, the king of Judah, saying, The thorn bush, which was in Lebanon, sent to the cedar which was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. For you have indeed indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has become proud. Enjoy your glory and stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so so that you, even you, would fall in Judah with you. But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, the king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. Judah was defeated by Israel, and they fled each to his tent. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem and tore down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. He took all the gold and silver and all the utensils which were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, the hostages also, and returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, and his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash slept 
with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, became king in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoahash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? They conspired against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and buried him there. Then they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his father's David in the city of David. All the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. The reading of Holy Scripture. Be seated, please, and let's pray together for God's blessing on his word this evening. We pray, O God, that you would be pleased to open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your holy word. We pray that the Spirit would attend now the, both the preaching and the hearing of the word, that it might come forth in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Up until this point, the account of Second Kings has been unified by the presence of two miracle workers, Elijah and Elisha. The death of Elisha and its strange sequel, when his bones brought a man back to life, Second Kings 13, 20, and 21, marks the end of that long prophetic era that lasted nearly eight decades. By restoring the dead man through contact with the bones of the dead prophet, God was showing his people that the divine power, which had been so active in Elisha and which had brought deliverance and life, had not, by the prophet's death, disappeared from Israel. As we observed last Lord's Day, uh, not last Lord's Day, but the last time we were in 2 Kings together, um, it hasn't disappeared from our day either. The power of, uh, of God, the power of, of God that brings deliverance, that brings life, hasn't disappeared in our day from the church. What follows uh, the era of these two miracle-working prophets in 2 Kings is the continuing account of the two kingdoms that emerged after the death of Solomon, Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. Both kingdoms will suffer repeatedly from a lack of sound leadership. Elijah and Elisha are no longer with the northern kingdom, uh, kingdom to uh, serve as protection for uh, the kingdom and to stem the tide of evil there. With a few memorable exceptions, Israel's and Judah's kings will lead them further and further 
into spiritual decline with many warnings of divine judgment until both kingdoms fall into the hands of powerful enemies and wind up in exile, Israel to Assyria, Judah to Babylon. But it's not all doom and gloom. There are bright spots along the way here in uh, the latter chapters of 2 Kings The failures of the kings of Judah doesn't set aside God's covenant with David. The Davidic line continues unbroken, and there are seasons of reformation and revival. In the north, there's mercy as well as judgment through the reign of Jeroboam II. Chapter 14, 23 to 29, Jehovah in his compassion, gives Israel in the north 40 years of peace and prosperity. Also on the, the immediate horizon, of the promise that Jehu's line would last four generations is fulfilled. And these are reminders that whatever the conditions of his people may be, God is faithful. And that's something... Uh, as we work through these, uh, the latter part of Kings here, that's something that we need to be uh, remembering in our day as well. Well, the segments here in chapter 14, verses 1 to 22, seem loosely connected. But they teach us to walk in full covenantal obedience with our eyes on God's judgments and on his promises. The first place we'll see in these first 22 verses of chapter 14, that God doesn't accept second best. Secondly, God's historic judgments foreshadow future judgments. And thirdly, God's promises stabilize history's turmoil. In the first place, then, God doesn't accept second best. Here in the first verse of chapter 14, we're introduced to another one of the kings of Judah, whom we might call the yes-but kings, or the yes-only kings, who are relatively good, but who lack wholehearted commitment to Jehovah, That's made specific in the account of Amaziah's reign in 2 Chronicles chapter 25 and verse 2. He did what was right in the sight of Jehovah, yet not wholeheartedly. In our text, he's specifically contrasted with David and said to follow the uninspiring example of his father, Joash. He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did according to all that Joash, his father, had done. Joash, remember, did right in the sight of the Lord all his days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, we read these evaluations of the kings of Judah, as we'll continue to read them in the course of the rest of 2 Kings, 
these kings that see, receive uh, qualified praise so often that we almost begin to accept them. We know, of course, from our exposition of kings so far that David is the standard for the kings. You can turn to many places in, in uh, 1 Kings especially, uh, but in uh, chapter 14, verses 7 and 8, Abijah the prophet is, is uh, told by the Lord to go say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you among all uh, the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. So Amaziah only comes up to a Joash standard, not a David standard, here in 2 Kings 14.3. But the next point in verse 4 can become so expected with the kings of Judah who are semi-good that we may even take these as encouragement, especially in light of the continual line of the northern kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Only the high places were not taken away. People still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Under Amaziah, once again we read, the high places were not taken away. And we've heard this before. 2 Kings 15, 14, 22, uh, 43, 2 Kings 12, 3, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Joash received generally favorable ratings, and yet the high places were not taken away. We read this ex exception repeatedly, and we become deadened to it. But that shouldn't be the effect because that's not Jehovah's attitude. In previous and in subsequent instances, as here in Amaziah's case, we should notice how Jehovah never fails to mark the negligence, shy of full devotion to himself. He wants total Devotion. He's looking for another David. He's satisfied with nothing less. Nor are we if we're in a right spiritual mind. A wife may think of her husband as an excellent provider, but a poor companion. But we wouldn't understand her to imply that she's satisfied with the state of that marriage or that she felt that the abundance he supplied on the one hand somehow covered the deficiency on the other. And so it is with Amaziah. The text implies that mediocre orthodoxy isn't an acceptable substitute for full covenantal obedience. God does not, will not, will never accept second best. 
Secondly, God's historic judgments foreshadow future judgment. The inspired writer goes on here in verses 5 through 7 to record Amaziah's achievements. He wiped out his father's murderers, but he did so with the restraint that Deuteronomy 26.14 requires. Verses 5 and 6 came about as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his hand. He killed his father's servants who had slain the king, his father. But the sons of the slayers he did not put to death according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses as the Lord commanded. Amaziah pulled off a remarkable victory in Edom, inflicting 10,000 casualties and and in conquering a strategic site. But then comes the then in verse 10, or rather verse 8. Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face each other, or more literally, come, let us look one another in the face. Amaziah isn't asking for a summit of the covenant kings, but, but he wants to go to battle. This is clear from uh, the second occurrence of the expression in uh, verse 11, before they fought, they looked each other in the face, which seems to be a Hebrew idiom for facing an opponent in battle. It's also clear from the way Jehoash understood Amaziah in verses 9 and 10. There, Jehoash uses an allegory to show Amaziah how foolish he was acting in which uh, there was a briar uh, and cedar and a wild beast, each in Lebanon, a place known for its cedar trees. Uh, the, the briar demands the cedar's daughter as a wife for his son, and a wild pea, a beast uh, passes by and, and tramples it. It's as if Jehoash says, can you picture the wild beast trampling the briar? Can you... Can you See the image of, in your mind uh, of the beast walking over that puny thistle. That's you, Amaziah. You keep up with this foolish idea of facing off with each other in battle, and you'll get trampled yourself along with the rest of Judah. Jehoash was saying that uh, Briar ought to know that it was a briar and be content with being a briar and not to step out of its class. It was really quite a put down to King Amaziah. His further comment in verse 10 points to Amaziah's pride as a major culprit. You decimated Edom and your heart became proud. Literally, your heart has lifted you up. According to Jehoash, Amaziah has become arrogant. He needs to stay home, relish his recent victories, and be content with them. And if he insists on stirring up trouble, it won't only mean his downfall, but Judah's downfall as well. But Amaziah was pig-headed. Uh, verse 11, the battle was set at Beth Shemesh of Judah, 
And Jehoash defeats his rival on his home turf, verse 12, so that uh, Israel each fled to his tent. This is a Hebrew way of saying they, they ran away with their tails between their legs. The narrator makes a big deal of this in, in verse 13 by putting the direct object, Amaziah, with all of his heritage first in uh, the sentence in the Hebrew text. And Amaziah, king of Judah, son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, Jehoash, king of Israel, captured. Significantly, the account of Amaziah's massive loss doesn't stop there. Verses 13 and 14. Jehoash went to Jerusalem, broke down 400 cubits, 600 feet of the northern wall. He plundered of the wealth of the temple and the king's palace. He carried off hostages to Samaria. At least seven times in First and Second Kings, Treasures of the temple and palace are either forcibly taken or given as bribes or tribute. Three times, these treasures are directly taken away by conquerors from Rehoboam, by Shishak, uh, 2 Kings 24. From Amaziah by Jehoash, 2 Kings 14, from Jehoiachin by Nebuchadnezzar, 2 Kings 24. The first capture of Jerusalem in 2 Kings 14 is quite reminiscent of the second capture, capture of Jerusalem in 2 Kings 24, where we also read that Jehoiachin was taken captive with the hostages and of the temple and the palace being plundered. So here in chapter 14, Jerusalem has fallen for the first time. And Judah now has its first experience of an exile. And so chapter 14, verses 13 to 20, functions as a foreshadowing of what takes place in 2 Kings 24, the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile. God's historic judgments foreshadow future judgment. Just as the judgment of 2 Kings 14 foreshadows the judgment that's coming in 2 Kings 24, so the judgment of 2 Kings 24 foreshadows God's judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70, and the judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70 foreshadows the final judgment of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as I've been saying to you in our exposition of Revelation, God's judgments in history are a microcosm of the macrocosmic judgment of the last day when Jesus Christ will come in glory with all his holy angels to judge the world in righteousness, bringing history as we know it to an end. Now, what does that mean for God's people? What does it mean that God's judgments in history foreshadow future judgment? God's judgments 
in the course of redemptive history are designed to make us ponder the final judgment when the risen glorious Christ will come to judge the world in righteousness. And what's our response to such pondering to be? Paul tells us in his sermon on Mars Hill, Acts 17.30, that the Lord Christ's final judgment calls people everywhere to repent. God's historic judgments are meant as warnings, yes, to the unrepentant. Yes, to those who are in rebellion against God, but the warnings that God gives uh, to the unrepentant who stand in judgment are meant as warnings to us as well, and they're to bear the fruit of repentance in our lives. God's historic judgments are meant as warnings to call us to repentance. The third thing we see in verses 15 to 22 is that God's promises stabilize history's turmoil. In these verses, we have two obituaries. Jehoash's in verses 15 and 16 is actually his second obituary. The first is in chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. And we could add the footnote about Amaziah's lifespan in verse 17 uh, to Jehoash's obituary as well. Amaziah's obituary in 18 to 22 is somewhat more troubled uh, than that of uh, Jehoash. An undisclosed group of individuals in Jerusalem hatched a conspiracy against him, tracked him down in Lachish, verse 29, 29 miles west-southwest of Jerusalem, put him to death there, verse 19, took him back to Jerusalem and gave him a royal burial. And then the people of Judah installed Azariah, also known as Uzziah, Amaziah's son as his successor, verse 21. What should grab our attention is what happens in the wake of these royal deaths. Things remain stable. In Israel, whose throne was no stranger to conspiracies and assassinations, the kingdom moves smoothly from Jehoash to Jeroboam II in verse 16. In Judah, even with the upheaval of a conspiracy against Amaziah, it never even seemed to cross their minds to put someone else but a son of David on the throne, a non-Davidic king on the throne of Judah. Azariah was the son of apparently hated Amaziah, but he's nevertheless been confirmed as his father's successor. And we know from our exposition of kings thus far that political stability rests on divine promises. Jehovah had promised Jehu a four-generation dynasty. Chapter 10, verse 30. Jeroboam II 
is the third of Jehu's sons to reign in the northern kingdom. There's one more to come in chapter 15. But Jehovah had promised David an unending dynasty, 2 Samuel 12 through 16, the promise of the Davidic covenant. And in spite of a Judean controversy, Azariah is the current proof that that promise still holds true. These obituaries can seem dull because of their repetitive and formulaic nature. But we shouldn't miss the point. Jehovah's promises direct history. History is driven by the promises that God has given to his people recorded in his holy word. When we observe the order and stability in early 8th century Israel and Judah, it's because Jehovah's promises rule. Now, the promise to Jehu was temporary, as 2 Kings 15 will show. But the David promise is abiding, and it still controls history. Even when the Davidic king was unseated at the exile to Babylon, 2 Kings 24 and 25, the Davidic line went on, and it resurfaces in Matthew chapter 1 in Jesus, who's called the Messiah. He moves from ministry to crucifixion to resurrection to ascension to enthronement. At the place of supreme authority and power of the universe. Ephesians 1 verses 20 through 22. And in due time, though we can't see it now, we see evidence of it, but we can't see Jesus reigning in the heavenly places, in due time, that hidden reign will be visibly imposed and obvious to all. That's what the book of Revelation has been teaching us. Admittedly, in this world in which we live, it doesn't always look like the David promise gives order and coherence to history. Even with the promise of that enduring kingdom, sometimes it looks like it's dangling over the edge of the abyss, ready to choke to death in its own depravity. But we know that King Jesus is still there, that he both reigns and will reign, and he will be victorious. Do you see just how central this Davidic promise of 2 Samuel 7 is? If we keep our eyes on that promise, it can serve as a stabilizing influence as we navigate our way through our slice of history and through our own life experience in the complications that we encounter throughout our lives. Our text teaches us 
to walk in full covenantal obedience with our eyes on God's judgments and promises. God doesn't accept second best, and you must not accept second best in your walk with him. Don't be satisfied with anything less than full covenant obedience. The, The Apostle Paul didn't and wasn't. Philippians chapter 3 and Paul's uh, letter to that church bear witness of that. Paul says that his goal, Philippians 3 verse 10, is that he may know Christ and the power of resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Notice what he goes on to say. Not that I have already obtained, nor that, nor have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And just so we don't mistake what he's saying here so that we get the point, he repeats himself, brethren, I do not regard myself having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward, uh, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul never saw himself as fully sanctified. Paul knew well that in this life no one is ever fully sanctified. And he tells the church at Philippi that they are to adopt his attitude. And he tells us today that we are to adopt his attitude of full covenant obedience and that we never stop pressing forward. We never uh, stop running after that prize. We always press on. We always press forward until God is pleased to take us into glory. God doesn't accept second best, and we mustn't accept second best in our walk with him. Then we also need to see the final judgment in the shadows of historical judgment. We need to see the final judgment in the shadows of historical judgment. Divine judgment is meant by God to be a goad that drives you to repentance and faith. Greater repentance, greater faith, ever growing in these aspects of the Christian life as we endeavor to walk wholeheartedly before God. And then we ought to learn to look to God's promises and specifically the Davidic promise of Messiah in the midst of life's turmoil. God's promises are like signposts leading you along the path to wholehearted obedience. So these things aren't unconnected at all, uh, as they may seem to be at, on, on the face of things in the text. No, uh, looking to God's promises and looking to God's judgments as warnings are part and parcel 
of walking in full covenantal obedience to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do look to you now and to your word, uh, its judgments, its promises. We express our desire to walk wholeheartedly before you. We would, we desire, O Lord, to, to be those who strive for full covenant obedience and nothing less in the Christian life. And so we pray that you would use these warnings of judgment in your word. We pray that you would keep our eyes on these judgments and that these warnings would indeed drive us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as we seek to walk after you with all our hearts. We pray, O Lord, that you would Make us mindful of all of your promises given to your people for their encouragement along uh, the way, along the path that, that leads to righteousness and ultimately to eternal life with you. And we especially pray that, uh, that you would teach us the significance of the Davidic covenant as it points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his reign and his rule. Uh, which is now and will ever be. We ask, O oh Lord, that these promises would be uh, markers for us, guideposts along the way to the celestial city uh, that would help us to walk faithfully before you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.